Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Alan. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Ben Proudfoot. Ben is the CEO and founder of Breakwater Studios. He founded it eight years ago, and this year alone, his team has been honored with the Digiday Media Award for Best Video Series, which is Almost Famous, in partnership with the New York Times, a Webby, a James Beard Award, and a Wind Rider Forum selected for Sundance for That's My Jazz as well as a brand film award for May Day, which was in part collaboration with Schwab, their client. Today on the show, we talk about how brand films can thrive, how marketers can work directly with filmmakers, and the new model that's emerging, both in the direct relationships with filmmakers that brands can make, as well as how he's producing films, a number of films, even this year during the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ben Proudfoot. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Excited to be here. Well, I figured we start off with a little magic. Tell me what it was like to become a champion teenage magician. Well, it was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I look back at that time in my life from when I was about 14 to when I was, I guess it was like maybe like four years, 14 to 18, when I was like super, super into magic. And it was just a ride. Like I remember I really got into it one summer. I saw a magician on the on the boardwalk in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia in, in a busker's festival named Patrick Drake. And he took me under his wing and he taught me. He said he wouldn't teach me any tricks, but he would teach me how to present any tricks that I learned myself. 
And it was a great partnership. And we went to the Canadian championship together. And uh, he won the senior and I won the junior. And I, that moment was a pivotal moment for me because I met the world champion at the time of Magic. He was there named Jason Latimer. And, and Jason said, well, if you want to be the best magician in the world, you've got to come to Los Angeles and join the Magic Castle junior program. And I think without that experience, I don't think I would be in Los Angeles and I may not even be in the film industry. So looking back, it was, it was pretty pivotal and kind of trained my brain early on in a certain way. Magic's great for kind of training your brain to be ultra creative because there's kind of no rules. Right. I've always wondered if you become a magician, does it take the joy out of watching other magicians? Are you constantly trying to figure it out? Like how they decompose it, so to speak? My experience is there are several principles of magic that once you have a handle on, you pretty much know what's going on when you watch a magician. Now, occasionally that kind of comfort and apathy will lead you to being totally floored sometimes when you watch magic. But in general, I, I really am able to appreciate the, the way that magic is presented. I'm not really trying to figure it out, but I'm watching for how the, the magician has kind of built the presentation of it. It does, and honestly, take the joy out of it a little bit. At least it takes the wonder out of it. But those times when you do get floored are that much more powerful. I mean, you can think about it like as a filmmaker, watching a movie without knowing any of the artifice, or if you're a chef, you know, not being able to discern between all the ingredients, it does take some of the joy out of it. But when it's really good, it's that much better. Nice. Let's talk about how did magic turn into a career in filmmaking and and ultimately, you know, uh, starting Breakwater Studios. Yeah, well, so that was where I, got, I first got tipped off to the Magic Castle in uh, as a 14-year-old at the Canadian, Canadian Association of Magicians National Convention. And then I joined the Magic Castle Junior Program, and I started my own business doing magic, where I first started to learn that how much I loved being an entrepreneur. And every time I'd make enough money, I'd go down to another meeting at the Magic Castle, and I made many trips down there. I don't know, 10, 15 trips to Los Angeles alone <laughs> as like a 15 year old. So I, I guess I look back and I'm like looking at my parents and saying like, how I, I don't think I could ever let my 15 year old kid fly from Nova Scotia to Los Angeles alone to go to a magic, magic school. But anyway, I, I kind of went through that and I, I won the international championship and I went to Las Vegas. And I just didn't like Las Vegas. <laughs> I just, you know, th that was kind of like where you had to be if you wanted to really go for it as a magician. And it didn't feel like a place that I would call home. It was hot. wasn't used to that. The whole gambling thing didn't really appeal to me. The smoke, I, I just, it didn't jive with me. And I had made a lot of different movies and, and videos really with my, my friends as a teenager, just for fun, like kids do. And I saw the video for USC Film School and instantaneously, I changed my mind from wanting to be the next David Copperfield to wanting to be the next Steven Spielberg and became obsessed with that career path. Uh, and that's what led me to going to the University of Southern California and uh, starting to make my own films outside of school. When did you, you know, you're going to USC, it's a top school for cinematic arts in general, not to mention just a great school overall. But like, was there a moment when you're going through school where you said this this is a not only interesting to study but like you wanted to be a career but you knew you you had something 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I got rejected from the film school to start, which actually is probably the best thing that ever happened to me was, was getting rejected multiple times from the production program. I came to USC undeclared and weaseled into the critical studies program, which is like the film theory program. Very similar, honestly, to the production program, but you, there's not really a film filmmaking classes per se, where you work with other students to direct films, except for one, which was like the beginning filmmaking class. And um, I had kind of like pulled my friends together to make a short film called Dinner with Fred, which was like a narrative, big narrative. We, we shot on 35 millimeter film. We got a period steam engine. We hired real actors. We, we recorded a score with players that, that work for John Williams when he records scores. And it was a big operation. And we played a couple really lovely little film festivals, but it, it did not launch my career in the way that I hoped it would. And then at school, I made a short documentary called Ink and Paper. And I'd never really done a documentary myself alone before. And it was about a letterpress in a paper shop struggling to persist in, in modern times in downtown LA. And I put it online and it went viral. This is back in 2011. And that's against the rules at USC. You're not allowed to put your student films online, but it was like over the Christmas holidays. So they didn't notice. <laughs> and by the time everybody got back, uh, it was kind of too late. And that, that really started my career in, in a real way where, where I felt as though I could make something that 100,000 people could react to. And I got a lot of meetings out of that, production companies and studios reaching out to me saying, hey, this is great. And, you know, doing the, the whole water bottle tour and all that. And that was really when I thought, hey, there could be something here in, in the short documentary space that I, I never realized. And frankly, that kind of set the course for the next eight years. Well, you accomplished a lot. I mean, you're what, 29? Is that right? Do I have age right? I am, yeah. So you're a young man. I can say that in my 40s, early 40s. But you've had an amazing run so far, right? You've got an amazing relationship with uh, Schwab, the company doing branded documentary films. You've got a relationship with the New York Times with their OpDocs program. Let's, let's kind of break these apart a little bit. Like, let's start with the New York Times. Like, that seems like not only an amazing opportunity, but a huge platform for an aspiring young filmmaker trying to make money, you know, trying to find a way towards money. Tell me about the relationship there and like, how did that come about? So the New York Times, obviously it's a, it's a big company and has millions of, of digital subscribers and they have multiple facets of their company that are involved in like video making and filmmaking and television making and, and narrative and nonfiction. And so my relationship with the Times started out with an initiative they have called OpDocs, which is under the opinion journalism section of the New York Times. And Lindsay Krauss is the, the senior uh, supervising editor there. And they program uh, opinion documentaries, which in kind of layman's terms are what they think are the best short documentaries um, being made that are the most relevant to today. And they have a really good track record of, of picking a lot of fantastic short documentaries. And it's one of the, you know, in a world where there's very little economy around short documentaries, it's one of the places you can kind of dream about as a short documentary filmmaker to, to have your film released with the New York Times. It's a, it's a big honor. And so when we had the chance to do that uh, with them, with a film I had made, just out of passion called The King of Fish and Chips. It was like just an amazing experience. I remember going to New York with Abby Davis, 
my executive producer and taking a picture in front of the New York Times building and it just being so exciting. And I still feel that excited working with him today. Such a just venerable institution on the planet Earth. And that film was successful and and luckily led to us really starting a more meaningful relationship where we've been making these almost famous films as a series. We've done four, we've released four so far and we're working on a whole batch more. But it's just been an amazing combination of me who has a huge amount of enthusiasm and energy and an amazing team that helps keep me prolific and making a lot of films and New York Times that needs really amazing high quality filmmaking on a continued basis. And so when we when we met, it was just kind of a great match. And I hope we both feel like we're getting the better end of the deal. <laughs> Those are always the best partnerships. Yeah, agreed. You mentioned one, the king of fish and chips. That's hilarious, by the way. That's such a such a character. Yeah, had and salt. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. It makes me wonder where you find these people. But uh, the other one that stands out to me, and I feel like I've binge watched probably all of them at this point, not to mention a few others, that, things that you've done. But the one in particular that stood out to me was the aspiring black astronaut who never made it to space. Yeah. Ed Dwight. Yeah. And he, his story with all of your films, frankly, that I've watched so far, there's just so many layers to the story that you're telling. Like you you think it's going one way and then there's a twist, but it's more of a layer than a complete right or left turn. And then by the end, you're left like just kind of like sitting in silence for a couple minutes, like processing. At least that's been my experience. And um, I don't see many stories like that stories told that way. So I don't know if that was something that was just natural, like it's just the way you've done it, <laughs> or if it was intentional, or I don't know how it comes about. Maybe it's just magic. You, know, you are a magician. Well, it's a tough thing to like introspect about, but I think the goal that we have when we make short documentary is to like, similar to a magician, we're hyper-focused on the audience's experience. And we're very focused on respecting the audience's time and making it as elegant and condensed and rich as possible. Like I, I, I've been enjoying Hamilton on, on Disney Plus. I've never got to see it on stage. But like when you listen to that music and those lyrics, you know that Lin-Manuel like just like worked on those couplets and those lyrics until like you couldn't, you could just kick the tires on them and you couldn't make them any denser, better. There's no better word. There's no more elegant way to tell that story. And we kind of tried to achieve that same elegance and density in our short documentaries. And because of that, we kind of have a different goal from a documentary series that you would watch on Netflix, because their goal is to fill your evening, right? To keep you entertained for as long as possible, because that's their incentive to to take up as much of the attention economy as, as they can. So with our goal being totally different to try to deliver you a really rich emotional experience in a limited period of time, you kind of get a different aftertaste. And hopefully it's one that you return to and uh, take something from, like a good conversation with a friend. But I do get that feedback a lot that, that the experience of watching our films is different than people's other like media intake experiences. For sure, for sure. And I say this with the most adoration for the person I'm about to compare you to, but it almost feels like you're the anti Ken Burns. <laughs> you know, you know, I could stretch your evening over five weeks with a montage that unravels the story piece by piece versus eight to 15 minute like wallop 
that you get when watching. <laughs> yeah, well, interestingly, he Ken Burns just started uh, something called Unum, which takes his big mega projects and cuts them into like clips and shorts to make them more accessible. But yeah, I mean, Ken Burns, I think Ken Burns' major drive is as like a, as a historian. And my drive is not so much as a, as a historian as much as it is as like a, a humanist. And like, I'm less interested in the objective truth and more interested in the subjective truth. Like, what was it like to be that person at that time? And what are all the stage magic tricks that we can use from, from Hollywood filmmaking to really bring this sometimes extraordinary, sometimes ordinary person story to life writ large in a way that we can recognize. So that's why we bring in big recorded live orchestral scores and beautiful color and anamorphic cinematography and all these kind of tricks that are usually reserved for big feature films for a theatrical release. We're using them in the short documentary space. And I think that's part of what makes our, our films unique. No, I mean, it's all those elements together that I think gets you that, for lack of a better articulate version wallop that I was talking about. It kind of hits you and really like draws you in quickly to the story. I mean, you only have a certain amount of time and attention that you're focused on. and But yeah, it, it's it's quite artful, frankly. Well, let's talk a little bit about branded films. I mean, you take this same approach and honestly can't tell the difference in the treatment, if you will, between uh, the different films that I've looked at, whether they were branded or more editorial or opinion, you know, with the New York Times initiative. So what was it about branded films? Why do that? Well, I knew that I was good at making short documentaries. And I also knew that there was zero economy around short documentaries, right? Like I'm rereading Walt Disney's biography and there's this part where he's making the Mickey Mouse cartoons, animation, short films, and like United Artists orders like 52 new Mickey Mouse cartoons and it's enough money for him to make the cartoons and make a profit. There is no such place for premium, true premium short documentaries. There's no such distribution method that today could hire me to make 52 documentaries in a year and for us to make a profit. It just doesn't exist. So if your goal is to, to make short documentaries, you kind of have to find other ways and un other alignments and ways that you can create value somewhere while, while doing your thing. And I kind of stumbled into the branded space basically because Vimeo, where I was releasing all my films when I was first starting out, they started a brand studio and their idea was to connect Vimeo filmmakers with brands. And so it was a project that was, it was me and then Vimeo brand studio and then an agency and then Charles Schwab. And we got the gig and this kind of like ladder of, of in-between middlemen is like very common in this world of branded stuff because there's all kinds of people who enjoy the, the cash. And we did it and we made the film for not, not very much money, but I was thrilled because I was just starting out. And then eventually both of those entities either went out of business or stopped working with Schwab and we got reconnected directly with Schwab. And they said, you know, budget wise, what do you think? And I said, same as last time's fine. And they sent over the contract and it was for like 10 times as much money. And I said, maybe there's some mistake. And they, we just figured out that no, the, the two intervening agencies had taken 90% of the money. And that's when I decided that I would never work with an agency or any intervening entity between me and the brand, not simply just because we wanted all the money, but because making films that you would make anyway as a filmmaker that also serve, serves the brand's purpose is really 
really difficult. I mean, I'm doing it for eight years. It is a challenge every time to walk that tightrope. It is not easy. And you really need to be in lockstep and direct contact and deep understanding with the brand if you have a hope in hell of getting it right. And that rule has kept us from being a more traditional production service company that works with agencies and has, has made us, I think, more successful, but also far more independent than a lot of other production companies who are dependent on really listening to what the agency is asking for, because we're not dependent on an agency. Our job is to make sure the brand is happy for their business goals. And so we have a unique, unique position in that market. I know you've, you are pretty vocal about the model and of trying to create these direct relationships, if, if at all possible, for if no other reason what you just described. But I think also you put an agency in the mix or any intermediary in any situation and you get a, a game of telephone or too many cooks in the kitchen and it can potentially damage the output and probably most likely is is watering it down at some level, frankly. So you found this model kind of a little bit by chance, but how do you maximize the model? Like how, what, what works well, what doesn't work well? You're speaking to marketers today on this podcast. So like if I'm a marketer, how do I think about working directly with a filmmaker or a production company? Yeah, so a couple of things. I think the first thing to realize is that whatever semantics you want to use, I really see like marketing and advertising as one thing and branding and PR and communications as another thing. I think there's a big divide between those two efforts within a company. And in general, and I'm generalizing, marketing and advertising charged with making an immediate impact on whatever you're trying to make an impact on, whether it's revenue or sales or whatever in this quarter or the next quarter, they're charged with leveraging art and advertisements and, and films and whatever to make an immediate impact. And then on the brand PR and communication side, my experience has been that those folks are really far more interested in the long-term brand building and storytelling around a company and the long-term vision that's usually connected to the founder or what have you, these kind of first things, rooted goals that are carried out over a number of years or decades. And people aren't used to it, but the films that we make really are better suited going through the PR communications and brand side rather than marketing and advertising. And there's a few reasons for that. One of which is that that marketing and advertising side, they're used to dealing with agencies and the idea of working directly with a filmmaker is not something that they want to do or, or are used to. And they also want to get the brand in there and they want immediate results and they want to meet their KPI and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like a lot of those things are really hard to measure and you can't do it. The other thing is a lot of them are frustrated. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Filmmakers on that side of things, right? They want to be involved in the filmmaking process. And therefore, and um, there's nothing wrong with that, but from a filmmaking side, right, what people want to see is something that's like of a filmmaker that like has a voice and it can't have a voice if you have too many cooks in the kitchen. And in my experience, it's far more likely that you're going to have too many cooks in the kitchen if you're making something with marketing or advertising. On the PR side, communications, they're great storytellers, but they're not, they're not like trying to make a comment on whether this should be, this shot should be a little punch in the shot a little, or I'm not sure about the flute lying there, right? Like it's more of a mutual respect situation where we're dealing in broad strokes of the direction. There's more flexibility and more mutual respect between filmmaker and company. And that long-term vision is really what we need as a filmmaker to push towards, not short-term product stuff. And obviously the problem is, is the marketing advertising people get all the money and PR and communication and brand, they don't have, they don't have the same budget. So you know, my clients that are doing the best in this in this realm are taking some cash that they traditionally have spent on media buys and advertising production, and they're giving it to their brand and PR and communications departments to work with folks like me. And it's not to say marketing and advertising isn't effective or that agencies in many cases aren't super effective, but it's a changing landscape. And there's brands have to pay attention to their long-term story and their profile as authentic entities in the world. And this is a great way to do it. And frankly, it's an affordable alternative to advertising. Yeah. A couple of thoughts just for what it's worth is I I think you're right. I mean, I I would characterize it slightly differently. I think even within marketing, there are two different schools of thought. There's the brand marketing side and to what you've described and kind of lumped in PR and communications, which I agree, they're kind of more long, long-term, really trying to find the right narrative. And on, even in the PR space, the editorial quality of that narrative, right? Does the story really stick? And not just do we want to beat our chest and say we're great. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think within marketing, what we're trying to do, and in my own small way, is try to bridge those two worlds of performance marketing or the what, I, what you call the short term, the marketing advertising, like we have to hit our number, sell more short term, promo focused even at times with the ability to focus long term as well. So like, how do we build this brand while we make our sales number every quarter? And I think there are companies out there that are starting to do that. But to your point, it makes perfect sense that if you're a performance marketer, This is not the tool that you pull out. But if you're interested in that long-term brand building, this is a great way to go. I also talk about it as a deposit worth versus a withdrawal. Like a good brand film is something that's going to make a customer or a potential consumer say, wow, I love that. I love that. That's great. And they'll feel gratitude towards Charles Schwab or whoever for bringing them that story, right? And it's just good. They're not selling you anything. They're not telling you, you know, $0 trades. They're just bringing you this wonderful story and you appreciate it and it's a deposit. And so then later on when they get served a performance advertisement where they're saying, hey, join up with us or we're better than whoever you're using or whatever, far more likely to engage with that in a positive way than never having had that initial experience. And I can speak specifically for my generation and Gen Z following is that, you know, we see companies as people with personalities and value systems and neutrality is no longer acceptable, right? Like 
brands have to commit to a point of view, an authentic and consistent point of view. And just like people, if you're not consistent, we don't trust you. If you're always trying to sell us something, we don't trust you. And one way to do that is to make films that have a consistent message point of view. And one may, way to make a consistent message and point of view is to work with the same filmmaker over and over again. And that filmmaker helps build your voice as a company and build trust with an audience. Yeah. I mean, I, just to use you know one of your clients as an example, I think just to bring this to life for listeners is you know Schwab, right? Like if you think about the performance angle of their advertising, no fees, doing right by their customers is kind of the general message, but it's a lot of like no fees, free trading, that type of thing when they're trying to get convert, right? But that only really helps them stand out because of the founding story of Schwab himself, you know, and Chuck. And I loved the fact that it looked like, correct me if this is wrong, but it looked like you did a, an interview or two with, with uh, Chuck, so to speak. I don't know him on a first name basis, but I feel like I do after watching the film. You did the, the interviews with Chuck and then eventually that actually made it into an ad, but it also provides context for the reason why they do and offer the products and services that they do. Yeah. And I mean, look, I just think we don't trust companies that exist because they think they can make money. Like people, this may be people in general, but specifically young people, if the purpose of the company is simply to make money, we don't care. That doesn't appeal to us. And there's a lot of companies out there that that's the only reason why they exist. And with in Schwab's case, right, and, and you get to see it in the films that we've made that feature Chuck himself, is Chuck was driven, sure, like he saw an opportunity and he's an entrepreneur, but really he was driven by wanting to do right by the individual investor, right? Like when he started in 1975, people were getting ripped off. It was an industry that was full of conflicts of interest. And frankly, similar to me coming to Hollywood and looking around, it just wasn't a business that I really wanted to be a part of. And so you kind of have a choice. You can either leave and go find something else. You can join the broken business or you can create something new, your own system that tries to change the game. And that's what Chuck did. And it was also met serendipitously with this May 1st, 1975 decision to deregulate the stock market and open up trades to the ordinary person that really created this massive fortress of a company that, that started with this guy and, and his disappointment with how, this, how the brokerage industry worked. And that's a, that's a real story. And it's true. And he's still chairman and owner of the company. And I think people like that. People like to know the context and history of like why this company exists, what the values are, and that it exists for something greater than just to make. And that certainly is true of Charles Schwab and company. Would you say that that like the story of truth and finding that thread, if you will, for a company, that's an, a key element to brand films? Yeah, I mean, you need clarity. Like that's where a lot of brands fail is clarity about who they are, who they are and who they aren't. Like I, I repeat this all the time to myself, to my team, clarity breeds success, success breeds options. And then when you have options, you lose clarity. So it's really a process of acting on clarity. And once you have success because of that, paring down those options into clarity again. And so the best marketers and the best PR people, the best communications people, the best brands, they are consistent and clear, repeating the same message more or less again and again and again and again and again over many years. 
right? Not changing to go with the wind blows. We don't like those people. We don't like fair weather brands. We want people who are consistent, even when it's hard to be consistent, even when it's ahead of the curve to be consistent. And the no better place for that clarity to come from than why did this business start in the first place? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I do want to, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how in this world that we live in of a pandemic, how has filmmaking changed? I mean, you you are, it seems like more busy than anybody I know in this business. (laughs) How are you continuing to produce? Yeah, it's very true. And they always, it's like an old adage and you hear it thrown around a lot during coronavirus that like pressure and lack of resources leads to innovation. And that's certainly true of us. Early on in the pandemic, I had to go home to Nova Scotia because uh, my dad was sick. So I, I really couldn't leave Nova Scotia. And then the pandemic hit, and then I definitely couldn't cross the border. So I was kind of there in Nova Scotia. We had all these projects we needed to do. And we needed to figure out a way for me to conduct interviews, which are common, sort of like the core unit of all of our films, without me being there. And so we hired all of our production professionals, cinematographers, sound recordists, et cetera. We put them on teams. We gave them this challenge of how we were going to operate in a safe way during coronavirus. And they came up with all kinds of incredible and genius ideas that we combined into something we call the SIP protocol, the self-isolated production protocol. And sort of high level, basically what it is, is there's a single crew member who goes to the location where the subject is, goes to the city or the the town where the subject is. We rent a location there. The single crew member sets up the camera, sets up the sound, sets up the lighting, all the computer systems. They build a huge plastic barrier that basically divides the space into the crew member's side and the subject side. We sterilize everything, wipe everything down. Then we abandon the space for 72 hours, which is the longest coronavirus can live on any surface, which is a very low, low, low chance of transmission with a surface. But we're making movies here. We don't take any chances. And then the subject comes back through a separate door. They have a separate bathroom. And I'm able to interview them over Zoom. And two people are never in the same room for the entirety of the process. So a lot of production companies are just slapping masks on people and saying, go do what you used to do and be careful and let's have tests. I just don't think that's safe enough. And so this model has been, it's both foolproof and something we've been able to do while I was in Canada. I'm back in the States now. And we've, we're on our 13th production. So with not many production companies operating, we've just gotten... A lot of calls and we've been executing for for our clients and for a lot of original work as well that's amazing and very inventive to your point you have to right keep going yeah i mean you know documentary filmmakers i think in particular are particularly agile and resourceful in that pretty much that's what we do every day we're, we're handed some new piece of information some new paradigm and we have to figure out how to operate in that situation and and this was just another one of those challenges That's cool. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. We love to get to know the person behind the microphone a little bit more intimately. And I really like this question, which is, is there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are? And we may have talked about it already, but I just wanted to ask. I would actually point to a series of similar things that I've experienced that really probably shape who I am more than anything. I don't know if I've had an outsized exposure to people close to me dying, but I certainly have had a number of people close to me die, even though I'm, I'm not out of my 20s yet. Close friends, several mentors, my father recently in May. And I think those experiences have taught me a couple things, but mostly that our life 
is so fragile and so short and of undetermined length and could really kind of like be over at any minute. And you could, you could look at that and you could see it as, as darkness, but it actually is intensely motivating to me. It is the, the red heat at the center of the furnace that drives me that I have a limited time on this planet and anything short of full out nonstop working towards building this company and, and building the, the family I want to with my, my wife and being a great friend and being a great family member, anything short of nonstop is like kind of not acceptable to me because I feel like who knows when it's going to end and how precious it is to be here. And I think that really shapes me. And it also gives me a lot of empathy for, for people in that, even though we don't talk about it, because I think we're kind of scared of the topic of death in America losing people that are closest to us and frankly ignoring the fact that we're all going to to go here at some point is kind of i think a core emotional unexplored story of most people and when you really get down to it those experiences of profound loss are some of our most sacred so those experiences for me really drive me as an entrepreneur but also inform me as a as a creative person as an artist and what i'm looking to capture yeah thank you for sharing and i'm sorry to hear about your your father it's never easy to lose anyone but losing a, a parent earlier in life i think probably takes an extra toll so thanks thank you for sharing well you're 29 this is may seem like a silly question but what advice would you give your younger self maybe we go back to like five or ten i don't i don't know <laughs> gosh what advice would i give my younger self i think i care less and less i think as life goes on what other people think of me <laughs> and i think I think maybe the first 20 or 25 years of my life, what other people thought of me was maybe the most important thing in my, maybe this is a common experience for young people. And I think as I've gotten more secure in like who I am and more able to appreciate what's good and what I have to work on personally, I feel less motivated to do things simply to please other people and far more motivated to do things because they're, it's the right thing to do, whether anyone notices or cares or agrees or not. And then I would love to shave a few years off of that first quarter century where I really was doing things to, to, please, to please other folks uh, alone. I like pleasing people. I mean, it's certainly my personality and I like doing well and making good on my promises. But I think sometimes that extends beyond a certain boundary of, of self-respect. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I think that's the trap too of being in a service industry, so to speak, serving a client or a, a, another being. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Another kind of silly question, but I kind of like where this goes from time to time is, uh, has there been an impactful purchase that you've made of $100 or less, say in the last year? Ooh, $100 or less impactful purchase. I'm going to say my Bialetti machine. What is it? So... <laughs> so it's an espresso maker but it's it's like an analog espresso maker and there's this i think it was a guy with the last name bialetti this italian guy and he invented this kind of it's like an hourglass shaped aluminum pot where you pour water in the bottom you put espresso and then you screw it on top and it and it percolates up and creates espresso and that is something that i use every day that I love and is under a hundred dollars, and I'm very happy that I purchased it. So that's that's the best I can come up with. I was gonna say AirPods, but I think those are like 
300 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, that would work too, but I really like the espresso maker. I'll have to have to look that up. I think I know what you mean. It's fun. And it's, and it's my, it's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I go out, I measure the water, I measure the coffee, I stick it on the stove and I read the New York times. <laughs> nice. Nice. Two last questions for you. A little bit more marketing focus. So I hope this is okay. Oh yeah, baby. Bring it on. All right. So curious if there's brands or companies or causes that you're taking notice of and you think other people should take notice of. Hmm. Yeah, I think, well, this is more in the filmmaking world than then the marketing world, but I, I do think it's all, all under the same, same heading. So there's a, there's a group called Brown Girls Doc Mafia. And this is a group in the film industry, and it's led by a, a filmmaker producer named Iabo Boyd. And it started organically with a group of Black, Indigenous women of color, I think, getting together at Sundance or a festival. And just realizing that there's no organization that, that brought all these folks together in the doc community. And so Iabo started this, this organization that at its most basic is, is a collection of these people who are, frankly, hugely underrepresented in the documentary community and also hugely underrepresented in the brand funded documentary community. And that's she's running an organization and doing a fundraiser right now to help build that. And I think I think it's really important. I mean, as a white man coming from from Canada, I've got a lot to learn and I've learned a lot both from from reading that I've I've taken cues from their organization and from friends who have sent me in the right direction. But I do think that as brands get more and more in the business of brand filmmaking, they should, in a quality and experience in whatever is obvious and it's important, but they also need to think about authentic authorship and who's the one making the film and how is that going to impact the film and what is the story they're trying to tell and how can we make our industry reflect what America looks like. And so I, I really appreciate organizations like that that are helping to make an impact. And I hope that brands pay attention to them too. Awesome. Last question for you. What do you feel like is either the biggest opportunity or largest threat that faces marketers? I think the biggest opportunity is for, for brands to disrupt the film industry. As in particular, if you look at Netflix, one of the worst things from an artist and a filmmaker perspective is that Netflix owns everything worldwide in perpetuity. The filmmaker never participates in the success of the project. And that's changed a lot from how the studios used to operate. And I think that's ripe to be disrupted, right? Sharing in the success of a project, aligning a filmmaker with the financial or distribution success Somebody's going to do that, and I think it might as well be brands. If you look back to you know how television started with different brands presenting different television shows, I think that's coming back, and and whoever figures that out first will will reap the benefits. I think the biggest threat is um, advertising and marketing is fiduciary duty. When I became a the owner of a company that had an investor in it, I became aware of this thing, fiduciary duty. What's what's that? Well, you know, it means that as an officer of the company, you are legally bound. You are legally bound in America to make decisions that make the company the most money, period. And if not, you are violating your fiduciary duty. And I think that's the biggest threat because I don't think that companies that simply operate on the fiduciary duty to their shareholders of making as much money as humanly possible 
will be, I don't think consumers will extend that understanding to companies for much longer. And we really need to rethink what the responsibility of these C-suite officers are. What is their responsibility? Is it simply to make as much money as possible? Or is there something deeper in society that they're responsible for? And this idea of social value and, and bring that into the duties of the officers of a company as a equally important bottom line to simply making money, I think solving that problem is one of the biggest challenges that we have going forward because we don't accept it. We think there should be something more, a bigger responsibility for these, these companies. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I have on this last note, your last response, I have someone to introduce you to. So more to come on that. But thank you. Ah, okay, great. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.